Pikachu, you need to see this! 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 It's a film podcast about filling in the gaps of our collective cinematic experience. I'm Luce Tomlin Brenner, and I'm joined by my co host, Cozy Orlin. Hi, Cozy. Hi, Luce. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. I missed the R and how are you? And I'm feeling real self-conscious. That's okay. We're all just new baby fawns experiencing the world. That's right. Uh, Nothing worse than that except for an old baby fawn. Oh, old baby fawns are disgusting. Uh, (laughs) We're also comedians and writers and filmmakers and historians specializing in the Japanese occupation of Korea. (laughs) each each week we pick a film that at least one of us has seen and at least one of us has never seen then we try to convince each other and you it's worth your time we'll cover everything from lesser known art house indies to how did you miss this blockbusters and we do it all with no spoilers no giveaways you can listen to this podcast if you haven't seen the movie please do that's the point uh so today we have a very special guest, in addition to uh, me and Cozy, who are always special. Uh, this week, we welcome Michael C. Hearn. Hello, Michael. Hi. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Great. Yeah, we're so psyched to have you. Uh, Michael mm-hmm. is a Los Angeles-based screenwriter and filmmaker, originating from Philadelphia, where That's he earned me. his uh, BA in film and media arts at Temple University. Um, and you're, you've written and directed and produced three original short films. Yeah, at least out here in LA. Yeah, that's incredible. That's and this is just in the last two years too, which is extra impressive. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, Always occupied and letting her go in 2018, and away with words in 2019. And people can see those all on your website. They're available now. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, um, uh, away with words is the one I just released recently. Um, Filmed with some people, some friends, uh, Michael Stevens, Emily Clark, and was a lot of fun to do. It's a very experimental project for me because I wanted to do a lot of not dialogue-driven storytelling in it, which I think kind of ties into what we'll talk about, I think, with uh, this film. Yeah. Yes, I actually have that written down. I, I, I watched all three of your films. And oh, yeah, for sure. No, they were they were great. They were all so different. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I noticed that communication is a huge theme throughout all of your films. Uh, it seems like the importance of using the right words at the right time or when to keep quiet <laughs> and uh, the way that other people's words impact the choices that we make in our own lives. Um, also, like you, it seems like you're working primarily in like a dramedy, drama. Yeah, thing. I would say so. Yeah, I mean, I think especially with uh, doing comedy out here in LA with UCB and, and the improv in the pack, it's just like, I've taken myself a lot less serious now than I did when I was an art house film student and <laughs> it beat a next David Lynch or something. And now I'm like, all right, we, I can wait, listen up. And I find like the sort of like all the best notes are kind of in the, in the in between anyway, where you're not too serious, but you can be approaching really interesting subjects that way. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's uh, where cozy and I also are where we both love art films, but we also are very silly (laughs) yeah like i i love pretentiousness and i feel like that's kind of what's been missing from my life on a lot of levels (laughs) i feel like the 
like the comedy scene really sucks it all out of you or yes. doesn't even get near it. And then I'm like, bring me to some art students. I need to feel like <laughs> me again. Oh so my God, it's, it's so weird... funny. I love that <laughs> yeah, you it's said like this that. weird balance. <laughs> my, one of my uh, resolutions for 2020 was to be more pretentious this year. <laughs> the best. Yes. I'm so happy to hear that. I, I need to do that too. I need to like really double down. <laughs> That's so interesting because you're right. Comedy does. There's, I, lo- I mean, I think we have the best comedians in the world at the, at UCB and at PAC uh, theater, but at the same time, because you're taught to parody and and find the silliness in everything it does really cut down uh your ability to be snobby which is a good thing (laughs) it makes you more approachable and a better human being but then also it's easier to watch shittier and shittier things uh to kind of like (laughs) make fun of it and have fun but then i'm like wait i need some serious like men watch a film with many languages uh yeah that is about like you lose those discussions, those big, weird, deep discussions that that everyone kind of like had in college, and then you come out here and you're like, "Who are the? Where were those people? Where are those discussions?" Yeah, not a lot of deep discussions happen <laughs> in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's weird. We gotta bring them. It's the I only think, way. I think that we are. Um, I think mm-hmm. we're definitely gonna get there today. And yeah, uh, nice, Michael. I think it's interesting that you brought up the connection to the film that we're discussing because, uh. I think the one we're discussing today is extremely uses language in an extremely meaningful yeah, way. Yeah, for sure. And it's um, where in your films a lot to do with relationships, and in this film definitely about relationships. And then also, signif- language is used to signify class and worthiness and who has power and who doesn't have power. And there's a lot of that, uh, like kind of who has the power using language in your films as well, even though they're totally different genres. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I didn't bring this film in because I thought, oh, this is just like my films. No, I, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> definitely, definitely not on uh, this director's level yet anyway, but even <laughs> besides that, subject matter wise. Yeah, but no, there, are, there is a lot, especially when I get into, I guess, how, like, my history with this director, too. Like, there's a lot of his influence in what I like to do with film. So, yeah, I think this, and this is probably one that really shows that off the most, too, for sure. What uh, he does with language and what he does with shifting perspectives and different power struggles. Yeah. Mm, mm. Shifting perspectives. Definitely. Well, let's yeah. get into it then. Um, today we're discussing 2016. It's the handmaiden and cozy. You need to see this. You need to see it. Cozy. I've never seen this. I honestly, yeah, I don't even remember. Uh, I don't remember anything about uh, seeing, seeing trailers for this or anything like that. There, there are a couple movies that it makes me think of that I half remember half seeing. So part of me is worried <laughs> that I've seen this, but I don't think I have. <laughs> Here's what I'll say about that, Cozy. You would never forget it if you yeah. saw that movie. Okay, and then that sounds like a no. <laughs> one of the most impactful films I've ever seen. And once you see it, I don't know. It's the kind of film that uh, there's a, many of these that I've seen, but it's kind of rare that once I see it, I'm like, no other film could top this. Like this is what cinema was made for. Interesting. Um, so, okay. The Handmaiden was directed by an iconic director, mm. uh, Park Chan-wook, who is known for his vengeance trilogy, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance in 2002, Old Boy 2003, and Lady Vengeance in 2005. Uh, his hallmarks are brutal violence and twisty plots and 
often kind of offbeat black humor. Mm-hmm. Um, most of his films are pretty violent. I don't love like Lady Vengeance and Mr. Vengeance definitely have a lot more violence than I prefer. A lot of more torture scenes. <laughs> um, this there's definitely a few scenes of uh, really explicit violence, but they're so earned that uh, it didn't they didn't bother me in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, have you guys are you guys familiar? You said Michael that you love uh, Parks. Yeah. Work. Yeah, Park Chan-wook is one of my, definitely one of my favorite directors. Also one of my favorite just writers. I think he's a really brilliant storyteller. Mm-hmm. And I think, especially just from Construct and sort of how he shapes the story out of what the theme of the movie is and how it like works on screen is really important. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I got introduced the same way I pro- a lot of people got introduced with Old Boy oh back boy. in 2003, yeah. 2004-ish. <laughs> And then just sort of been following him ever since. And he's, yeah, always been really interesting, really offbeat, really stylish, but not like what like I like the idea that it's all earned because it's not flashy or empty. It is very much supporting what each film is trying to say and does it in very unconventional offbeat and sometimes unsettling or like graphic ways that may uh, shape a lot of people differently. I actually saw, I rewatched The Handmaiden for this, obviously. I rewatched it with my girlfriend who had never saw it the first uh, before. Oh. So it was her first time seeing it. So I got to see it a little fresh for another perspective too. And I'm like, Oh yeah, this is a very uh, extreme film in some ways. So it was cool to see her reaction to a lot of the moments in it. Uh, uh, I had a similar experience in watching it with my boyfriend last night. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I, one of uh, his films that I really love is actually the American film uh, Stoker. Yeah. I've seen Stoker. Did you see that one, Cozy? I feel like you'd like that one. No, I've never heard about that one. The only thing that I've heard from him uh, is uh, is Old Boy, which I kept hearing was super great and never saw. Also recommend Old Boy. And yeah. uh, I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. Is another one of his that I really like. That's a real title? Yes. That is. <laughs> is that a translation or just an original title title? I think I mean, it's a it's... translation. It's, it's a hard translation, to... but because it sounds like a translation in an amazing way. <laughs> I mean, I kind of yeah. love it. All of his did. films are Korean, so except for Stoker, yeah. uh, so it's definitely a translation. And a amazing bit too. Uh, he also did a vampire film called Thirst, which is oh, really yes. Great. I've actually Ooh, been wanting yeah. to see Thirst, um, and that brings me to uh, actually who adapted this screenplay because the handmaiden is actually adapted from sarah waters book the fingersmith and what's interesting about that sarah waters you can probably tell is a english name Mm -hmm. uh her book is a british victorian novel so uh park uh co-wrote this script with seo kyung jong who he's collaborated with on many of his screenplays uh lady vengeance but i'm a cyborg and thirst mm-hmm. so i really love i think she is uh such an incredible collaborator i mean I, i've just said that twice but she writes female characters so well and i think it really pushes out his female characters in an authentic way when he works with her um and i think that she that adapting this from a british story is really impressive because the British mm-hmm. story is um, very much about like Victorian Britain, where this is about, they move it to 1930s. They don't say an exact date, but it's the, uh, 
the colonial rule of Korea, uh, Japanese uh, colonial rule of Korea. So somewhere between the 1900s and the 1940s, and based on the cars, it seems like maybe it's the 20s or the 30s. Uh, so to be able to shift that and still use so much of the same, it, it's, I've read that it's very fat, faithfully adapted, although I never read the book. Are you familiar with the book, Michael? I'm not, yeah, I'm not familiar with the source material really, but yeah, I was aware that it came from this, a very different source material from what he was doing, but it, yeah, it's kept a lot of details. It's interesting that it was able to do that so seamlessly because it seems like those situations would be so different, but I guess the, the subject of the story is kind of translate well anyway. And it yeah. can be kind of universal that way. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think it really speaks to uh, Parks and uh, uh, his collaborators' storytelling ability that they are able to take the meat of the mystery, which is really interesting and compelling, and then combine it with these really fascinating elements of class and power within um, a time period that I know little to nothing about. Yeah. Um, and make it so uh, authentic and very like emotional, like very moving and fascinating in a way where I was like, now I want to pick up a book and learn about the <laughs> Japanese colonization of Korea. And I'm not a big history person in general. So when a movie, when movies get me interested in history, it really makes me feel like they're extremely well done. <laughs> There's a lot of like alternative or hidden history in this too, which I don't know if the book uses too much of either, but like a lot of the literature and the like sort of like hidden secrets of like each of these uh, colonial roles is pretty interesting. And yeah, I definitely. Mean, who's to know how much embellished it is or not, but it's uh, seeming seems pretty real. Yeah, it does. Seem <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, I think it's pretty amazing when a screenwriter can make a story feel like you're not sure if anything is heightened or if it's straightforward. Yeah. Hmm. Um, well, I'm not a big history person myself, so <laughs> it might take a fair amount of convincing. <laughs> Don't worry, this isn't a... Uh, yeah. It is historical in that it's set in a specific time period, but it's not sure. about history. Nice. <laughs> so, no. Don't worry, like that. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's starring a South Korean cast of uh, Kim Min-hee, Kim Tyree, Ha Jun-woo, and uh, Sho Jang-rong. And they're all huge stars and have been in yeah. several big uh, South Korean movies. And Kim Min-hee is actually in the um, TV show Mr. Sunshine, which I've heard incredible things about, but haven't had a chance to see it myself. Uh, I'm not too familiar with that one. I am familiar with her from, uh, she's in these films by this director, Han Sang-soo, mm -hmm. which is a very opposite of this, very dry, observational, like uh, small scale dramas that are almost like maybe old school Woody Allen Maybe, yeah, like very literally just like about film directors having affairs with uh, students and having affairs <laughs> with like meeting women on the street type of things. And oh, she's Lord. really naturalistic in those as opposed to here where she's very heightened. So it was interesting seeing her after a couple of those in this. So it was very cool. Oh, yeah, definitely. Is that uh, Little Forest? No, uh, she was in one called Right Now, Ron Den, and then there's one I haven't seen called Grass, and I think she's in a couple more of his uh, 
but yeah, it's very, they're all kind of like, even if they're like stylistic experiments, they're all very natural feeling films. Oh, okay. Oh, I think I switched. Uh, I think we switched to, we were talking about, are you talking right. about uh, the one who plays Lady Hideko? Oh, Lady Hideko. I mean, Tim Min He, not Tim Tyree. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, yes. I have not seen those films, um, but that sounds really interesting. I wasn't familiar with her. So uh, Kim Tyree is the mm-hmm. one who's in the uh, Mr. Sunshine. Yeah, she's, okay. she's the hand, Tidor handmaiden. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, okay. Oh, uh, on the beach at night alone and the day after. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen the day after. Yeah. I've actually seen these covers, like I've seen um, these posters before, but I haven't actually watched them. So you recommend those films as well? Yeah, definitely. Especially for a different like uh, flavor of like South Korean drama, for sure. Very cool. Uh, Cozy, do you have any history with uh, South Korean film or any films that you like in particular? I know you weren't a big Parasite fan. <gasps> uh, yeah. Yeah. <I> <laughs> But it wasn't even that I wasn't a big fan of it. Like, I liked it, but I didn't like it to the same degree that everybody loved it. You know what I mean? Like, I didn't hit that ceiling that everybody hit. <laughs> That's fair. But, yeah, but uh, I don't know. Not really. There there aren't too many that come to mind. Uh, I feel like, no. You love Okja. Uh, I did like that one a lot. That one was super good. Um, and then yeah, we, no, I, we I tried to convince you on the, on the host. Uh, yes early in our one of our first episodes for the podcast was about the host which you still need to see i still need to see i have not seen that one um well i think it's interesting that a lot of people have missed this film uh especially yeah i I loved parasite and you know obviously the big takeaway was uh privilege and class and who has power and who doesn't and um Bong Joon-ho's amazing ability at shifting power based on where the camera was and how he used the camera to show uh, who was feeling more confident in certain conversations. But um, Park actually does very similar work with this film and four years ago. (laughs) And I feel like it didn't get like, if you're interested in class struggles and Korean uh, history and how that translates to many of our lived experiences, I think he does such a bang-up job with that in this film. Um, yeah, and oh, I'm sorry. No, just trying to say, like, yeah, and also this is a film where because so much changes of what we known, sometimes we'll rewatch a scene in the movie that's shown from a different perspective, and that mm-hmm. shift even, like, reveals like it doesn't feel like a repeat it feels like new information of a previous thing we thought we knew is now changed because we now see the other person's perspective and it does that quite a bit especially in the middle of the moon and yeah i think it's really rewarding to like you probably could have like he probably could have released a cut where it just is straightforward and then you have to rewatch to get everything Mm -hmm. i think it's actually a lot more rewarding emotionally like that we get all that in the first time through Yes, and I want to come back to that because that's one of my five things. Yeah, me too, absolutely. <laughs> oh, great. Okay, well, um, I'm going to do a synopsis and then mm. we will get into it. The Handmaiden combines several genres, as we spoke about earlier. It's all at once. It's a crime thriller. It's a historical mystery. And it's a lesbian romance. All of those things. Uh, so Park Chan-ook's retelling is set in colonial Korea and centers around a young woman 
Suki, who is raised as a pickpocket in a for-profit orphanage. She's asked by her associate, a fellow con artist named Count Fujiwara, to scam a rich Japanese heiress, Lady Hideko, out of her fortune. He gets Suki a job as Lady Hideko's handmaiden and uses her to help seduce Lady Hideko so he can marry her and take off with her fortune. Meanwhile, Lady Hideko lives with her pervy and sadistic uncle who wants to marry her himself and use her fortune to buy rare Japanese books and erotica. Just like the whole fortune for books. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus erotica. Christ. That's I know. A very, I mean... I don't know what I'm expecting from a pervy uncle. Maybe that's like, <laughs> maybe those are every pervy uncle's goals. Buy books. <laughs> Erotic books. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That is the difference. And yeah. a van. Mm-hmm. Lots it's, of uh, octopuses on ladies' genitals. Those types of books. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> uh, so few are who they claim to be, and the plot becomes a winding, tense journey as the characters' self-interest are revealed in a series of unexpected events so uh that's a handmaiden what do you think cozy uh it does sound very very windy and uh, <laughs> and, and like full of intrigue uh and some of that intrigue sounds intriguing some of that intrigue <laughs> sounds boring i can't decide yet <laughs> oh don't worry there it's never once boring yeah i was about to say it it will keep you on your toes um and yeah like a lot of the elements that sound almost strange become very integral to what not only just the film as a story but like what it means and how it like moves along and it's all very important to every character like there's never like a character just being like whatever it's all really (laughs) it's it's a very intense film absolutely i totally agree um so this movie cozy you never even heard of this movie yeah, no, this is a new one to me. Um, I, I, I did look, I, I looked at the, um, I looked at the, what's it called, poster, the movie poster. Mm-hmm. And I think that based on the movie poster, I probably just kind of would have assumed that it was a, a historical Korean movie. And I don't usually see those. Oh, I would it's, ask it's you to serious. look. I would ask you to look at the movie poster again. Maybe uh, I'm looking I, at a different one? No, it. you have to look at it closely. It's actually, I fucking love this movie poster, so I'm really <laughs> glad that you brought it up. It um, sort of reminds me, uh, for some reason, it always makes me think of the cook, the thief, his wife, and her lover. Yeah, I was about to say Peter Greenaway very much, yeah. Wow, oh my gosh, that's really? amazing. Because, uh, yeah, it's like very positioned, like the way they're positioned, they're at, like where they're looking placement of like hands on each other hands the, the oh, power the struggle hands. is there yes the hands and the gloves that's oh, a good yeah. this does that does look very cool and artsy in interesting yeah. ways to me but i totally and, get how you first look at it and you're like okay just a bunch of people's faces that i don't necessarily yeah. recognize sure absolutely and and that sort of feeling of of um I mean, of political it, intrigue on some level or manipulation it, in general like that's not the type of thing i'd go for Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, this not it's definitely not political. Uh, it's extremely mm-hmm. personal. Yeah. And Ooh, okay. Cozy, you're somebody who uh, is very interested in personal relationships and how uh, people are 
truthful, uh, how introspective they are, how how true they are to their nature. And this movie definitely examines all of those ideas. Interesting. Uh, so I wanted to see this movie when it came out. I, uh, I think the last movie I saw of his was uh, Stoker when it came out. Mm. Um, and it's one of my favorite films. And I was just really psyched on this. Um, I love queer cinema and uh, I haven't seen a lot of queer Asian stories. Um, so I was very pumped on that, but it was in and out of theaters here. I feel like in a weekend, if yeah. that, I totally missed it. Yeah. I tend, I tend to try to go see like a lot of foreign films that come out to LA, even if they're kind of bigger piece foreign films, just because they don't tend to last here too long, unless they're at like a popular theater, like the Arclight or Landmark even. Uh, I saw The Handmaiden in theaters here in LA, and it was only at the Lam Royal, the Lamley Royal, in uh, West LA for a week, and oh. that's a that's a theater like all first star is very far away from me, and also yeah, it's mostly inhabited by a bunch of older people. So I was watching this very intense, uh, graphic very film, sexy but, movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I love. I also love the idea of being in inha- of it being inhabited by old people. Like they're yeah. definitely living somewhere but, in that. Theater. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, it's very much a ghost theater somehow. Like I'm just yeah. <laughs> The uh, Lemley Theater in general, even the Lemleys in the Valley are populated by older yes. folks. I went and the last movie I saw to Lemley, I, an old man started clipping his toenails next to me <laughs> during the movie. And I thought I would lose my mind. It was oh, such no. a nightmare. <laughs> Jesus. Um, so I saw it more recently and I... It was a movie I totally forgot about, actually. It was like one of those films that you're like, yes, I really want to see it the year that it comes out. And then you miss it, you miss it, you miss it. Finally watched it. And I just, uh, I am so happy I got a chance to see it. But I'm like, oh, these last four years where I could have been (laughs) thinking about this movie. Because it's just so sumptuous. And there's like, visually, there's so much there. The story, there's so much there. Like, it's. I mean, I found it extremely inspiring and I don't really work in this genre, these genres, but like I, just the storytelling of it um, really fucking got me. So I yeah. think this is kind of a life-changing film. <laughs> <laughs> See it, Turkey. Uh, no, um, the story, <laughs> like, like I said, George uh, Andrew like one of my favorite just storytellers as a filmmaker the way he uses film and the way he uses like the narrative structure of it all. And it's definitely one of the main reasons I like, like one of my five reasons I like. Should we get, do we want to get into it? I didn't mean to jump ahead of it. No, no, we're, we're there. We're start with, uh, what's, uh, what's your first reason why cozy and everybody needs to see it. I mean, number one, it's just that this will like make you rethink how storytelling and film especially works just because it is such a layered story and it is so unconventionally structured but it works so well and it's so in tune with the characters um and it all is based around like perspective of each character so like each this film is kind of broken in the free acts a little bit like i mean that's kind of how all films are but it it gives inner titles it really separates it and you can tell why it breaks it that way in the free acts because each new ad kind of shifts the perspective so much something really big happens at the end of each act that really breaks apart everything you knew and but it also, it doesn't feel just like a twist for the sake of it. It really changes how each character appro- like, approached not only everything that's going to come now, but everything in their past. 
Um, and it could feel very unconventional just from how we're now seeing new different stories that inform all that. But it doesn't feel, it, you don't lose yourself in it. It feels really natural to what we know about uh, Vorn already and what we'll like want to see now. Like what we're always left with like, well, what happens now, now that we've arrived here? And it like informs you kind of by going into the past and letting you know new things that way. I absolutely um, agree. Yeah, perspective was uh, my first reason also. I, many films that, so this is a film that's told like you said, in three acts, but very clearly has three parts. And it goes through and it's like, and it shows you kind of the same thing again, but from another perspective. But you never, what I love about it is you never feel like it's a flashbang reveal. Like, oh mm -hmm. shit, you thought he was like this, but he's actually like this. Like, <laughs> in less deft hands, that type of story, I mean, I've seen that a million times. Like, you thought he was a good guy, but he's a bad guy. <laughs> and it's not, it's not at all like that. I love what you said about um, how it informs each character in a new way in each act. Uh, and the way it moves backwards and forwards in time and like layers it, it's kind of like, um, have you ever seen like, a, I don't know, like I'm thinking like a storybook almost where there's like a layer, you'll look at like a picture and then there's maybe like a tracing sort of picture you put down over it and that like adds more to the picture and then there's like yeah. another and then it adds more to the picture. So it's sort of like a book where you're turning pages and each page is like, clear but has another part of the picture on it mm -hmm. um and i i never felt like i was being manipulated like no. I, it was like oh he's fucking with me like i hate when i'm watching a movie and i'm like <laughs> okay bro you got me you know <laughs> like and people are so obsessed with calling anything a twist ending when it's not what you're anticipating and i wouldn't say that while i i think the plot is twisty none of it feels like you're being caught and you're it's like always a it's always a surprise in a very natural way where you're like oh my god that makes so much sense yeah. it's like when you learn something about some dude that blew up at a party and you're like what the fuck is that guy's <laughs> problem as if you could go through like his whole life and then understand <laughs> why he had a meltdown at this party in the exact moment <laughs> No, it's a film that really rewards like in just observation and intellect really well. Like if you're paying attention, there's a lot of visual cues that like are kind of shown without explanation at first. And then as you get to understand a character, see more of it, you realize how much importance that visual is. And it usually gets brought back in an important way. Uh, I was watching with my girlfriend and she's the type that when we get to like something interesting or strange that it hasn't been answered, she's like, wait, why is that in there? Why, why is this? why is this ton black? Like, I don't get it. And then like, we see like a scene later, like this is why. And it, it explains so much. Oh, that's and great. that happened a lot in it. And I think it is a film where, yeah, it plants a lot of like, he must've thought out this story and rewrote it and restructured it a lot just to like make those connections, like feel so seamless. Cause it doesn't feel like, again, like it's there for the sake of it. It really adds to the atmosphere and to the story of it. Yeah. Each character is so rich and has so much personal history and personal yeah. story and all of it is shown not told like yes absolutely. i i watched um 
uh, oh my God, Interstellar for the first time this week because um, we did another Earth uh, for the podcast last week, and that's a lot about multiverses. And my boyfriend Isaac was like, oh, we should watch Interstellar. It's also about multiverses. Um, I don't know if either of you two have seen it, but nope. most of the movie yeah. is just the characters explaining yeah. why things are the way they are. And it was... And it's three hours long. This movie is also <laughs> three hours long. And it's really interesting to watch two three-hour movies in a week. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can really see why, like, Christopher Nolan is kind of a hack, a blockbuster hack. I mean, his stuff is, is fun <laughs> on a level. But, like, he, all of his movies are just characters being like, and this happens for this reason. And this happens for this reason. And none that never happens in this movie. It's just, no. oh, it's just things happening so naturally characters interacting uh so emotionally true to like you'll be like why is she acting that way and then like you were saying it's answered without anybody saying well here's why she was acting that yeah. way like <laughs> it's writing i think it's next level writing like i Definitely. i think so few people are capable of showing and not telling and uh well it takes me to a do you mind if I jump into a number two and then hit it back to you? Yeah, go for it. Michael? Please. Uh, okay, cool. So I number two for me was this film is visually outrageous. Like it is <laughs> so beautiful. It is it they show a lot of um Japanese woodcutting uh uh paintings and portraitures. And uh, because the uncle collects these rare books, you see a lot of these paintings throughout. And there's uh, an obsession with uh, old, kind of ancient Japanese art in it. And the uncle is Korean, but he um, kind of helped the Japanese uh, soldiers colonialize Korea, right? Like he, he yeah. got gold. He, he became wealthy to an extent by helping Japan occupy Korea. And he's like obsessed with Japanese culture. He hates being Korean. He wants to be Japanese. And so the way that he is like obsessed with this art, he even makes his um, niece dress in like a traditional uh, Japanese, sort of like a geisha look. Yeah. Um, and his obsession with aesthetics is met with, the obsession with aesthetics that clearly mm -hmm. the art decoration, the art part department has. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know if I'm explaining it well. It's like, it's mirrored in the way the entire story is told. It's almost like the uncle <laughs> designed the visuals of this film. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really interesting because that would add a lot to like, it's a very meta film in general, but that would make sense too because it is a very beautiful film and not just in the way that a lot of period films can be beautiful because they did all the research and they got the right art people to really recreate the time. It's very visually beautiful in like very unconventional ways. Like the cinematography is like insane in ways mm. that like a period piece film wouldn't do. Like the camera will crane around in ways that are really insane and the different perspective shifts even are just shot so differently that you can tell this is the new person we're focusing on as opposed to before i and agree it does it so seamlessly and yeah i think that adds to all the visual elements that are really strikingly well done um there are not to spoil too much because we want to avoid too many spoils but there are uh there is storytelling in this film that is about different storytelling different perspectives 
uh, where she's reading erotica for these men. And just the added visual elements, which are done kind of in-house by the uh, uncle and like helpers, are still also strikingly visual. Like it's like you're saying, like where it adds in almost seamlessly, where it's just almost part of the heightened fantasy of this whole film. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, you're right. That's really interesting because fantasy and mm -hmm. erotica is such a big part of the theme, and uh, attention to detail and aesthetics are a really important part of erotica in general. Um, that's very much shown in the scenes. Um, that actually are there are like very sexy moments in this film yeah. and those are aesthetic as well however the uncle's obsession with erotica is objectifying his niece and objectifying you know women in general and he's a very sadistic person whereas the scenes that are shot between the two women are i don't think are very male gazy uh, they feel like the um, it's beautiful because their pleasure is beautiful and their connection mm -hmm. is beautiful, which I'll get into more on my next thing. But I think it's really interesting the way that uh, he plays with uh, the visuals in that what is sexy and to whom is shown with the different shifting perspectives. And the fact that they're able to do that is so precise uh, I don't think many filmmakers are aware of um, their own male gaze and how that transfers onto their subjects when they're making films, so much so that they could even play with that and have their characters embody that gaze while switching the objectifying gaze to be more uh, more about one's personal experience, shifting away from the object into the personal. Uh, I think it's just really beautiful and like very it adds to the moments when you're really feeling for the characters it makes you really empathize with the struggle of the women in the movie no i agree and yeah it's a very much a film about uh sets and romance and the separation of the two one way or the other and it is it definitely did make me aware of like the gender politics of it because obviously it's a film by a male filmmaker but it is based on a woman's book. It is cat like it gives these really powerful roles to these two leading women. And I was thinking a lot about other films where like there are similar subjects in films made by women. Like there is a like Portrait of a Lady on Fire from last year is a very beautiful film about a ro lesbian romance, and it's by a woman. It's starring mostly women. It's written by a woman. It's like so that one like was able to avoid the male gaze just by that. Here, I think there is like a lot of active focus on how we can make it as less male daisy in the, like the romantic parts. And I think a lot of it has to do with like vulnerability and who's willing to be vulnerable in these moments. Um, and how otherwise sets it, like there's a lot of power plays in this film, and a lot of it has to do with like the sexual politics of what's going on in these scenarios. And a lot of that comes from just the men bullshitting, basically, like uh, the men <laughs> being in control and being assholes. And when it comes to women, they're a lot more earnest. And I think they play with that visually as well as literally. So it was really cool. It's a really like layered film in that regard, too. It was really like a lot of food for thought there. Uh, Absolutely. That, like, other films that might approach subjects like that don't do the work on. I was really uh, thinking of blue as the warmest color while I was That's watching that. Too, yeah. Um, yeah. Cozy, did you Very, ever see that film? I did not, but I heard a lot of great things. 
Yeah. Well, it came under some fire. It had some flack for being um, objectifying. And a lot of queer Uh, women thought that the sex scenes felt like they were male gaze powered sex scenes. Um, I I have a hard time sometimes because it's like I'm queer. I have sex with women. I love seeing women having sex so I a lot of times I'm like yeah this is hot um but it's interesting because uh I think the some of the actors weren't comfortable and they spoke on that in a brief amount whereas Mm -hmm. I was looking to see what the actresses said about these scenes but I had a hard time finding anything in print um but I thought it was really interesting these movies came out around the same time and no one talked about this film as much and it is I thought the scenes were, even though I thought both movies were very hot, I thought the scenes were shot with such much, much more respect and much more relatable sensuality. Yeah, they're both very graphic films, but in very differing ways of how the graphicness is. I felt Blue is the Warmest Heart was kind of like totally removed from the set scenes almost in the way it was so graphic without being too pointed in on their perspectives, whereas The Handmaiden these set scenes are all, for starters, they're all very important to the story. They're all very important to the characters, obviously. And they're shot with that respect and that like intensity that makes it graphic. And there's a very deferring like approach that way. Um, yeah, I, it is interesting how much this, and this is going to come at a later point. This one kind of flew under the radar for a lot of people, even fans of Park Chan-wook's South Korean film in America. And it was really kind of a shame um that it didn't get the short shift and i worry part of it it might just be the hard sell of this is a two and a half hour film very Mm. historical and very graphic kind of film um so maybe it was just a hard sell and the foreign distributors didn't want to do it but it did it was weird just how awesome this film was and how little fanfare there was outside of korea for it so i mean for me personally this hits all of my buttons like (laughs) it's like fast paced it's it's outrageously sex. It's like, I mean, I'll get into it. It's my number three, but uh, it's it's so sexy. It's so thrilling. It's a beautifully shot. I think that this movie has everything. Like, I want every movie to be this movie. <laughs> uh, but let's get into your your second thing. It almost does everything. It more or less was this actually. I oh, kind of great. just wanted to say about the idea of exploring like sort of per- different perspectives of romance earnestly, being less squeamish about the subject of being graphic, whether it's in per- quote unquote perversions of like the uncle and stuff, or you know quote unquote different romances that were allowed at the time with the lesbian romances in nineteen thirties Korea. Um, but I think it's just also like there are a lot of like I love a lot of films that really deal with sort of the hidden secrets of human sexuality i guess to some degree like one of the first films i saw that really got me in the film was blue velvet which Mm. very much has to do with the idea of like small town america hiding behind like what they do behind closed doors um and this obviously is all about the history of erotica to some degree because the uncle has this whole hidden history of you know all the secrets we the men desire all the secrets maybe the women even desire all hidden behind closed doors and then this is like the reality of it too where the women get to express how they really feel about everything and we sort of see the division between it all and why things are kept this hidden um and to some degree like sort of why films that are this graphic get so much like recognition for being so graphic is that not that doesn't happen a lot in modern filmmaking even still like a lot of Mm -hmm. films are very 
cagey about those subjects, especially in America. And I get like, you don't want to just do it for the sake of titillation or sake of being overtly drafted for no reason. And I think you can do it really intelligently. And I think this film above all does it super intelligently as well as passionately. Yes, I completely agree. That's my number three. Um, I, I really love sex in film. Um, I, I'm like very pro if it makes sense. I, I hate, uh, most sex scenes that are just like a man on top of a woman and then there's a cutaway and like, they're supposed to be, if you're going to include a sex scene, it needs to move the story forward and it should say something just like every scene in a movie. It should say something about your characters to say something about their relationship. And oftentimes, like you were saying, there is just like some very unrealistic sex in a movie for titillation, but is takes me out of a film because that's oftentimes not the way sex looks. And it is doesn't feel like it has anything to do with the characters. So many sex scenes are very rote in that they're all doing it pretty much the same way. And <laughs> it's interesting to me that you can have spend whole time on a screenplay flushing out characters and motivations, then only to have them have this very like sweaty, panty, missionary sex that lasts a couple minutes. You know, and it's like, why even have that scene? Um, so when a movie comes along, I, I'm like desperate for good sex scenes in movies because I really think that it can heighten the stakes of what's happening, either showing, again, power dynamics, of course, and then like, oh, what type of relationship is this? How serious is this? Are they about each other? And 100% every sex scene in this movie just takes the story to the next frame in a way that I don't think you could without the sex scenes and I think they're outrageously hot like they're they're hot in a way where I felt myself being like like moving my collar away (laughs) like oh god (laughs) I need some water (laughs) it's it's so it's so good and it's almost like it's it's almost like uh I I think that you get lost in them for a moment which I really like because yeah. it's between these two women who I feel like are they're so tormented and they're they're everybody is like conning each other and at different points to the movie you see both of these women as victims so when they come together uh in this like intense sensuality it feels like this reprieve for them and then as the story continues it feels very powerful and I love the way that he kind of makes you see them as victims and then turns that on its head and kind of makes you think about your own idea of womanhood and like what women are capable of and how we see women as sexual, weak sexual objects uh, and how like sexuality can be and is extremely powerful and liberating and how these their sex liberates them, essentially. Um, Obviously not just the sex, but uh, their connection to each other, which is also really deeply felt and doesn't just feel like two people fucking. Yeah, and I mean, again, I saw this with my girlfriend who never saw it before, 
and it's obviously very graphic in those moments, but it doesn't feel gratuitous. It doesn't feel pornographic, even necessarily in like the ways that like if I mean if porn was shot this way, porn would have like huge <laughs> budgets of yeah. Like, this is what I want porn to be. I believe in <laughs> porn. <laughs> hey, I as a former video store manager, I can tell you there's a lot of three and four hour porn out there. Oh, boy. For people oh, rent. No. <laughs> don't want that. Oh no. Wow. <laughs> but it's yeah, like everything you said is a pretty is accurate about yeah, like everything about this, and it's brought up kind of in the film. It's very meta in the way like the char- the male characters all like approach sexual storytelling by inserting themselves into the narratives by wanting to be the one in control in some weird way, and then in this case, the women are completely like e- ego free. They just are in that moment in the film, very mm. specifically in those sexual moments is freeing from the constraints of this is a quote-unquote story moment or something. It's just this moment between these two people that's very real feeling, even as heightened as it is. Yeah. I love that phrase, ego-free. I can't agree with you more. It's a really good observation. Uh, And I don't think that you know that until later on in the movie. And that is what really makes it even more powerful because you – because you keep thinking as you're watching it that like someone is pulling something on over another person. So you're, the scenes all take on meaning on like a rewatching um, that, I don't know. It's so sad. I'm thinking about it now. It's like how much I love this movie. This happens to me every week. I get lost in the scene. I'm trying to describe. I get overwhelmed by my own passion. Uh, <laughs> Well, do you want to jump into uh, your number three, Michael? Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, I can go on forever about how much I think Parchin, which is like a master storyteller. And Definitely. I think this film is very much a story about storytelling. Like, I think it's about the purpose of storytelling, the power of it. And it's very meta in the ways uh, that, like, the storytelling is important to the film. Obviously, a lot of conning is going on, a lot of uh, sort of elements of you know, like telling a story to one person or ever, or having to be a person, having to change your perspective, like your perspective changing because of what is revealed and that change how you approach being a storyteller. Mm-hmm. But it also carries this very interesting political element with like how storytelling before was so patriarchal before and now it's kind of being freed by these female characters. And it does it in some like literal ways, but it also does it in like more like elementally figurative ways where they take stories that were told to them and make it their own. Um, mm. And it's a really arresting, like uh, freeing film for these female characters because of that. And again, like so much of this film is into making these female characters very powerful and defined and unique. And it would be like kind of a shame. It would be kind of a shame if like it was a story about women like fighting back and getting their you know like freedom and not being a f- and freedom in storytelling, and then the characters were sucky or they didn't have that message yes. of like overcoming the men in it. And yes. I think the film does so much of the work in making that come across in like so many different ways about storytelling. I think it's really powerful. Perfectly put, Michael. I couldn't agree more. There's so many mm-hmm. films that are like strong female character and that's the that's the thing and i've definitely i think we've had episodes in the past where it's like well the good thing about this movie is that the woman is in it (laughs) 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 
Um, that's just not enough for me. Like that really worked for me as a teenager as in the 90s, uh, late 90s and early 2000s because we had so few films like that. But we're 20 years later, we're so beyond strong female characters. And the fact that there are still films like that being made bores me so much because I, a woman leading a film is not enough to, for me. A, a woman killing a man, is a, then none of that means anything to me anymore. Um, mm. And so many films that are just written by men and just made by men, that is uh, what the females are just like, there to be tough. And I think that uh, I do think that Park has always been very strong in telling stories with very uh, pushed out female characters like yeah. that are extremely explored. And I think because of, uh, you know, his work with his female screenwriter, I'd like to think that uh, his his uh, powerful storytelling uh, combined with an ability to listen to and value women's voices really takes him up a notch Uh, because I think it really means something when a male filmmaker can work with a female storyteller and um, and not bulldoze he strikes me as someone who doesn't who is very much hearing other people's stories and wants to put that on film and not just tell the story that he wants to tell Oh, yeah, definitely is a collaborative feeling film from like all the actors, all the art design, all the cinematography, and obviously all the writing to make it because again, like that would kind of betray what the film's all about if it was just like some auteur just wanting his own vision, it would have to be so open to everyone's input. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I can't imagine how the film could have been made otherwise. Yeah, I read that he works with, uh, uh, yeah, like his art director and costume people are all younger uh, Korean women. And that mm. I think his ability to, to look towards uh, a next generation brings a lot to his work as well and really shows his openness to collaboration. Because I think there's definitely a feeling in filmmaking that like you have to have so much like gravitas um and that younger people it's harder to get behind the camera at a younger age unless maybe you've been doing that through uh film school or other you know financial privilege and i really like that he works with younger people because there's also like a freshness to this even though it's also it is historical but like you said earlier it's not stuffy the way a historical period film is it feels like there's elements of modern visuals used in it, but not in like a Baz Luhrmann kind of way, uh, in a very <laughs> elegant way. <laughs> yeah. No, it's a very classy, not Baz Luhrmann style film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to even use their names in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think Baz Luhrmann makes very fun films, but it's a totally different style. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, my, my fourth one was actually about, um, the costumes and, uh, the jewelry in this movie and how they're, they take on their own elements of characterization. Uh, And a a lot of you said earlier about how, um, they do a great job with the period decor, but how it means so much more than just set dressing and Mm -hmm. cozy. I think like you're. Uh, maybe ambivalence towards a period film or hesitance towards watching a period film, I think this would really overcome it for you because 
while the period is important because of the gender politics within it and the story that it's telling, what is really fascinating about all of the period-specific costuming is that it really means something for the characters. The characters use it in a way that is also a part of their liberation. Um, In so far as there's a Chekhov's gun moment with an Hmm. article, uh, uh, an adornment that is, was so unexpected to me that when it happened, I went, Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, so fucking psyched about it. Like, I don't know if you ever have this experience, either of you, when you're like watching a film that unveils, you know, elements in a clever way, but like sometimes when things come together in a movie and it's like a Rubik's cube lining up an experience Mm -hmm. I've never had, but can only imagine is extremely joyful. Uh, (laughs) I like, want to jump on my couch and like start cheering <laughs> like how I imagine sports fans feel <laughs> it's like you fucking did it like I'm like so psyched that I'm like oh you made this mean that and I didn't even see it coming 20 points to park like <laughs> I mean I've had that during improv shows <laughs> <laughs> okay cozy I think that there are several <laughs> moments in this movie where things come together like a really good ass cat show. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a perfect callback situation. Right. I like yeah. it. Yes. Perfect callbacks onto perfect callbacks. And so many of them revolve around feminine things, which means so much to me because so often uh, things that are deemed feminine, like fashion, uh, and um, accessories are thought of as frivolous, are used to establish how like weak and vain and stupid a female character is. And as someone who uh, is both extremely feminine and really cherishes and loves fashion and fashion history, to see fashion be used as a powerful element not only as um like for the characters themselves but also how it's used to denote class and also and also used by a man to to try to underscore a woman being frivolous and how a woman uses that exact same trick to show how she's not frivolous is very interesting and again, complex and layered. And it, I love that the clothing can be used as so much more than set dressing. I think it really shows somebody who appreciates all aspects of art because filmmaking, you know, in the best hands is art. And to be able to say, but the sets mean something and the costumes mean something besides just enhancing the visuals. And I, oh, it's so exciting to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Like the fact that you can make costumes thrilling as I think really meaningful. Mm. Um, Michael, what's your number four? Um, This might be a little bit of a tangent, but number four for me is just in general, just to go on like the topic of how this film did outside of Korea, like it wasn't approached much in the U S wasn't witnessed much. I just want in general, like to be there to be more accessibility for not just foreign films in the United States, but also like, foreign actors, foreign directors. Um, this is good coming off of how this year was the first time in Oscar history a South Korean film was ever 
nominated just not only for like all the films that Parasite was nominated, but for best international or foreign feature at all. Uh, like there have been films that came close, like last year, Burning got into the like top ten shortlist, but it didn't even get the nom for best foreign film. And mm-hmm. Parasite obviously got a lot of nominations and wins. It was still kind of like shafted by the Oscars in some ways, in terms of it's used a pun, in terms <laughs> of like uh, how like actors weren't recognized at all. And it's so yes. weird to be able to say this film, like we all clearly got it, we all clearly loved it, we all clearly thought it was beautifully told and directed and everything. But the actors weren't recognized at all. It was so weird. Yes, that and somebody that, could be the best director, but then yeah, like, what, what were they directing? The actors, yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> How did you direct this so well? Like, what did you work with? Oh, I worked with Son Kang Ho, one of the greatest at like Korean actors of all time, and yeah, like weird. It, it was so weird. I think only the SAG Awards gave like a shout. Like they gave the best ensemble award mm-hmm. to their just very accurate it's a very great ensemble and i think with this film especially the handmaiden you can tell like all the characters you can tell every facet of what has gone into these people to make the character so real and that's because they're all great actors but they're also really well directed really well you know established and shot and performed and i think you like there's a lot of lack of recognition of how great foreign actors can go into and i think it might just be the language barrier, but it also just might be how like Western people see acting a little bit. Yeah, and I agree just- totally, and uh, and I think that an element of racism of like how we recognize yeah. um, Western faces and yeah, like that- emotions. That's true. I, it it almost seems like um, the woman from Roma, like she was up for a nomination for best actress, and there was a lot of talk. Yulitsa uh, Aparasio. Uh, there was a lot of talk of like people in the academy being like, I don't know if I can vote for her because I can't tell if she's acting or not. And it's like, yes, you can. You what? Can tell. I know. I it's never just, even you know, heard like, that. Do you, do you think she's a maid like in her real life? And they just cast <laughs> even even then, there is like a long history of using non traditional actors in films. Like Ken Loach does it all the time. Even like films like uh, even by Darren Aronofsky did for that Botson movie. He had a lot of non actors in that film. You can mm-hmm. get great performances out of non-actors and they can be reckoned and they're still acting. They're always performing. That's what a film Absolutely. is. It's just this weird conversation to be having about people when it's like, if you get the character, then they're, it's because of an actor doing a really great job. And I think the actors in uh, The Handmaiden are like all terrific, obviously all multifaceted because these characters change a lot throughout the mm-hmm. film. And they really sell all the like all the like twists couldn't have been sold if like a character couldn't act one way and then the other. Oh, absolutely! Um, Lady Hadaiko's character is outrageously complex, and her—I mean, I love all the actors too, but her performance specifically, like many moments, gave me chills. Yeah, like I she's mean, almost frightening at times. Um, um, which I think is really interesting that she, you don't know where she's coming from. And then as you learn more and more about her, your feelings towards her change, but not in a manipulative way and almost like a, in a way where you can see her humanity more, the more the camera sees her humanity. No, definitely. And I mean, I've, I feel like it's just this frustrating thing of like how boring this world would be if we only cared about American films or whatever. Yes. Like mm. it's just like this. Why won't you like? Why you can like get into different actors just by watching their films and their native tongue and like learning how like Korean acting looks like, and so you know when 
and but even without that, it's just like it's so apparent because they are great, great performers being directed super well. And I just it's just this weird thing of like I I mean I watch tons of foreign films and theaters and at home and I'm just like involved like I did from an early age and I think maybe I'm just more versed in it, but it's easy to verse yourself into. It's mm-hmm. only getting easier now. And I think it it's kind of hopeful that like Parasite won so much like renown and is so much recognized that like maybe that'll start happening more in America. But I just it it's not hard to like do the work. Absolutely. Just because a lot of films are out there. And yeah, I don't, I don't get the mindset of people who don't see like the powerful storytelling and performances that come from like other films from different countries because they're there. They're like, it's not like usually like the best come like over to us as is mm-hmm. just because that's how like distribution works. But like you can, it doesn't take too hard like to look into it and see what is so good and so recognized across the sea so absolutely it's easier than ever i mean you could just google what are the best 10 foreign films of 2019 (laughs) and somebody has compiled a list somewhere for you um you know i love that point that you made about uh, how boring the world would be i I was making that argument a lot last year because i one of my favorite films uh one of my top three favorite films last year was the farewell uh, Lulu Wang's uh, film yeah. that I thought got totally dissed. Like I can't yeah. believe, I thought for sure it would get some Academy recognition because it's yeah. one of the most beautiful stories I've ever seen. And if that was about an American family or even a Western family, even in Britain, I feel like people would lose their shit. It's such Oscar bait, you know, quote unquote. Oscar even, bait. even if they cheated and like, even though they're in, uh, it was Taiwan, right? Or mm-hmm. even in China, yeah, China. China. Uh, even if they were just in China and everyone was speaking phonetic English, it might have gotten more recognition. Just because, like, we're so averse to like having to understand is like how an Asian actor acts differently than a Western actor, just from language barriers. It's so weird because like a lot of uh, a lot of Asian actors do get brought over to America, but they kind of have to be forced into uh, acting in English. Like, mm-hmm. Bai Duna is, like, this Korean actress that, like, has worked with the Wachowskis on a bunch of projects with, like, Sense8 and uh, Cloud At- Atlas, and I think she's in their new thing. I think she's trying to be in The Matrix now, too. Mm-hmm. And she has to speak English in all these Western films. And she's still a good actress, but it is just this frustrating thing of, I've seen her in other Korean films where she acts really well. She's in Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, actually. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah as the girlfriend and she acts really well in that one in Korean. And it's just frustrating that like there might be some limitation having to force her into acting in a language that she's not natural with. Mm-hmm. And it would just be like so much cooler if like America would like embrace, like when a foreign actor comes over to be able to still accept their for like their nationality. I totally agree. And, and like stories about, um, first and second generation Americans, I would love to hear to see more of as well. Like, that's what I really liked about the farewell was that it was like, I, you know, have a ton of friends who are like first, second, third gen. And I love hearing their personal stories and they're, cause they're so different from mine and I can yeah. read as much as I want, but it's, they're so hard. I love reading, but I film to me just takes me to that next level of like, I feel like I can understand things so much better through that um, art form and getting to see someone's life play out the way it did in the farewell. And even in, in this movie, which, you know, takes place almost a hundred years ago. And I, to just be like, wow, I've never thought about 
Korean occupied or Japanese occupied Korea. <laughs> and I, I am so fascinated by it now. And it's a, you know, a lack of good public school education about internationality and my own, um, you know, embarrassed to say that I, I'm not naturally interested in international history. And, but I, am when I get to see the stories it's like I won't go to read about it because what I technically read about all the time is like film and comedy um but when I'm presented with it I love it and we need to hear and see these stories because it's the most accessible way for people to learn about people that aren't like them (laughs) and um to read about times that you probably if you're an American weren't educated about um and I I get so much out of reading, hearing stories that aren't just about white people, you know, having trouble in school yeah. or the white man is angry. So he has to <laughs> kill people. Isn't that crazy? Like we've heard that story and I just want to learn about other people's lives in a cinematic way. Yeah. And I mean, all about what makes this movie so interesting to it, it what makes most foreign films interesting is just there is a universality to it where you don't have to be a Chinese granddaughter dealing with your grandmother's death to understand all the importance of the farewell mm-hmm. and in this one this is as removed from like today as it can be but there's so much universality in what the characters in the handmaid are going through and feeling of just even at the base level of like being a like having to like put on a show or put on a lie or being a victim of like circumstance of being like in an area you wanted to break out of mm-hmm. just so much of that is immediately accessible that you don't have, obviously can't be a, a South Korean woman in thirties uh, <laughs> under Japanese occupation, but you can get everything that is being put down by this film because of that. That's um, such a great point. Yeah. There is a universality to uh, the ways in which the characters are looking for like, like personal autonomy yeah. As well. And um, Cozy, I feel like you and I have talked so many times about films that like that show the importance of uh, autonomy and connection and how hard it is to find a genuine connection. And I think that you would really connect to that aspect mm-hmm. of these stories. Hmm. Um, (laughs) I love I always love a cozy hmm, I can tell he's really thinking about this one (laughs) Um, well I'll get into my fifth reason and then I want to hear all of cozy's uh, thoughts because I could see I could see you really contemplating (laughs) Um, I was like I don't think I've said anything in like a half hour (laughs) (laughs) you could jump in whenever baby (laughs) Um, okay, so one of my, the fifth reason is, uh, this is a movie that plays, not plays with, but utilizes language really well. Um, mm-hmm. It utilizes Korean and uh, Japanese. And the way they do it is uh, the Japanese is in yellow subtitles and the Korean is in white subtitles, because oftentimes some characters speak in both. But when people use Korean and when people use Japanese is very important important to understanding their characters and their motivations and uh, what is important to them. And I think it, it, again, it's something I had not considered. I don't know a lot about, but I felt like I was getting this crash course in um, classism and colonialism. And that, again, was something that I can appreciate even without having that be my background. And I thought it really 
there are very few movies where I've seen spoken language utilized to um, symbolize people's power over one another and their um, material desires, which I think is really uh, fascinating and again artistic and complicated and. I, that could not have, that wasn't in the fingersmith because that's like a straight British story. Yeah. So the fact that he was able to um, take that story, retell it, rework it into something new and using language to further push out the intricacies of power was um, really fascinating to me. Yeah, it's definitely very political how it's used to just obviously from all the power structures of this is Japanese colonialized uh, South Korea. So I the Japanese speakers are in power. People who are speaking Japanese are trying to take on power and Korean almost feels immediately vulnerable as a result. Mm-hmm. Um, I do admit that after going on that tirade about how the U.S. needs to watch more foreign films, I do wonder how much this played differently in Korea where they wouldn't have had to have Korean subtitles but only Japanese subtitles. Mm, I do wonder that because in this, in the uh, version that's streaming, even the version I think I saw in theaters, it starts off by announcing that, yeah, like the uh, Koreans in white, the Japanese subtitles are yellow. And then uh, it put, like, so you see those shifts and you kind of have to have that in the back of your head. Korean audiences might have been able to roll with that, like, in a much more direct way, where, like, they hear someone speaking their language. And then when there's a different power shift, they hear a different language that they have to pay attention to. Mm. Um, and then there are also plenty of moments in the film where there is like almost dialogueless moments that have a power of their own because they don't have to rely on that. I think the very last scene is a very powerful moment just in general on top of being like a Koto. Like it's not a twist. It's just a powerful moment of freedom and there's mm-hmm. no dialogue in it. It's just a silent moment. That's and a great a, point. Yeah. A very beautiful like way to finish that film. And, uh, yeah, I think it plays with, like you said, it plays with language in all those interesting ways, both politically and just in terms of storytelling. And yeah, like again, like this was totally made for this film. So it wasn't like something that came out of something else. It was coming out of like the desire to put it in this environment. Mm-hmm. And there must have similarly been a lot of different research of how colonial Japanese people would have spoken Japanese, what, what is conversational Korean in the 30s. Like everything like that must have been like, put through the ranger to be as powerful as it is yeah such intense research clearly went into it uh what's your fifth thing michael uh my fifth thing to i think i just put this on because i i submitted five different films and i noticed they were all very sad films to some degree <laughs> and i think because i'm a very sad guy but um i kind of like want people to embrace like sort of like the thing about we were talking about at the start about embracing comedy and tragedy like it's hard like i like things that are, even if they're like heightened very heightened dramas or very heightened dark comedies to embrace some sort of sense of tragedy and there's just a lot of tragedy even though like i wouldn't say this is a tragic film there's a lot of tragedy in the background of this the tragedy of that these women had to fight to find autonomy in the first place that there's a lot of colonialization going on in the background that is like leaving a lot of people behind that there's a lot of dark personal history to these characters I think by embracing the tragedy, you're able they're able to overcome it in their own lives. And I think that's something I like in storytelling is when you can acknowledge like sort of a sadness behind why you're telling the story in the first place. Mm-hmm. And then, but finding like a power and a redemption in doing so. And I like to do that uh, in my work. I like when films and movies and TV shows that I see 
do that in their own way. And it's also like, again, very universal because we all have kind of that in our background, I think, and just sort of like a desire for better. I like, I like it when it can be done really well and really uniquely. Oh, I totally agree. I love a good tragedy. Yeah. I thought, Cozy, that's your thing too. You love sad <laughs> movies. Uh, I love sad movies, but I don't love tragedies, as weird as that sounds. There's that a weird sense. difference for me on that one. I don't think this is a tragedy. I think there's a lot of tragic no. elements, but I actually think this is like a, a movie of like a triumph. Yeah, no, You're this okay. is actually probably the least tragic film of the ones you could have chosen from me. But... Yeah, I thought I thought that too, because I think between me and Cozy, we had seen most of them. Right. And we were like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think this one is extremely, um, it leaves on like a hell yeah ending. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the last shot, I agree. I really love the last shot. It's uh, really powerful. I love a good. Also, uh, we didn't talk about this, but there's they they have some really interesting stuff about suicide in this movie, also. Um, which, if um, I would say, like content warning, uh, maybe yeah. for anyone. But again, this movie really does have like a lot of sex scenes, a lot of erotica, a lot of uh, that very serious scene that's of torture. <laughs> um and uh women being put in precarious sexual situations so if any of those things feel uh like difficult for you i would say that this might be a movie that you have a hard time with but as somebody who personally has a hard time with a lot of those things i found it to be so empowering and so um uh delicate in the subject matter that i was didn't walk away from any of it feeling negatively impacted um, but I like the way that suicide was handled in this movie. And I think there's some interesting examination of Japanese um, culture around suicide and um, the idea of going out on one's own terms, which uh, is kind of interesting sub subplot to the yeah. story. Um, I think uh, one, of, one of the other films I did uh, suggest was called Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. And that yes, is about I haven't seen that and I wanted Japanese. to... Uh, not it's not a spoiler because it's all true but yeah there's very much a lot of that in there about going out on your own terms and the culture around that yeah Mm. interesting yeah that was neither cozy or i had seen that and um so we didn't go with that one but i wanted i've been wanting to see that so i'm happy that you brought it up again yeah one of my favorites yeah Awesome. Well, uh, that was a lot of information, Cozy. <laughs> As you said, we did a, little, a mini film lecture for you. You could see the wheels turning on our Google Hangouts. <laughs> so interested in your feedback. Uh, do you think that you'll see this film? Did we convince you? Okay, so there are a couple of things that this brought up for me in interesting ways. Uh, I like First of all, I like that you mentioned how visually interesting and amazing it was. That's always a really good pull for me. Uh, anything that sounds like it was we- like in the same way that Parasite was visually fantastic. I was like, okay, all right, well, that, that'll take me to see it, at least in theaters. I don't know if it has necessarily as much of a bearing if I'm watching it at home, because I never watch anything at home. I have no <laughs> clue. My TV is like fine sized and my, my, uh, my terrible <laughs> laptop is large somehow. Uh, but I don't know. It doesn't really hit me too much. Um, but yeah, like that's still definitely a thing that would, would move me towards it. 
the idea that one of the main people was raised as a pickpocket sounds cool as hell. <laughs> yeah. Is that something that we see in flashbacks at all? Yes. Yeah. There's a oh, lot of, yeah. uh, wait, uh, there's a lot of Oliver moments for me in this. I think <laughs> sure. Like, How do you avoid that with pickpocket <laughs> stuff? Right. Yeah. That sounds yeah, great. Yeah. And I think Count okay. Fujiwara has like a Fagan. Is that the, the guy's name? Fagan? In, um, I Oliver. didn't see it. I was in I was in Oliver <laughs> twice familiar. on the stage, so I was like watching it, like, oh yes, this reminds me of uh, Charles Dickens in this way. Oh, uh, that's so funny. So yes, you will you will appreciate. There's many moments where the pickpocketing uh, comes up. That sounds cool. That sounds cool, and I think that cool is kind of what would drag me. Uh, cool is what would drive me more towards this. Drag is a terrible word for this. Um, <laughs> yeah. No one's know, dragging right? you. We want you yeah. to gallop like, forward towards <laughs> I know, right? Excitement. Um, yeah, I think that cool moments drive me to dramatic films and funny moments drive me to comedies. And because this doesn't have any comedic elements, I'm looking for those cool moments. There are comedic elements? Yes, I will say neither Michael nor I talked about the funny moments of this movie. But Oh, my God. But, <laughs> so I, I briefly talked about Park's uh, style in the beginning of the podcast, and his uh, black humor is really woven into all of his films. And oh, yeah. there are many moments that are very funny, but it is, it's dark. Yeah, um, I love dark comedy. Yeah, there's a there there's a moment with an octopus that I found extremely delightful. Um, and Every moment with an octopus is delightful. They're <laughs> they're a delightful animal. I would go so far to say that the entire torture scene is also pretty funny. <laughs> really, I don't that know. That sounds interesting. I don't know how it struck you, Michael. I mean, I had to watch it behind um, my eyes, but. Uh, <laughs> I thought that it was very funny. I think a lot of the moments yeah. where people get hurt in this movie are funny. Yeah, no, I, that's common in Park Chan-wook films, especially like Old Boy and stuff. Yeah, where like a lot of the graphic nature of it is still delivered with almost a slapstick timing and like editing. Kind of uh, like, kind of like, uh, like uh, Tarantino Kill Bill style. Yeah, a little bit, definitely. I know is Tarantino that, was a big fan of Old Boy. Yeah, because it did. Yeah, because in those movies, it always felt so like big and yeah. silly and comic. Uh, I would say and I was just cracking up the whole time. I would say it's not delivered in a big way, yeah. but like that is very much Tarantino style. Yeah. Uh, but I think that he takes the dry, comic nature of an absurd situation, and then he applies his Tarantino bloodshed and and um, gargantuality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, gar gargantuanism uh, no the first one was perfect gargantuality okay <laughs> <laughs> amazing yeah hold on to that one it's bringing wonderful. my creative spirit to everything I do uh, <laughs> he, he, he takes like park style and then applies his own largesse to it so, so that aspect uh, is it's not big Parks, uh, everything in Parks films are, are more quiet, but it is definitely comic. Yeah. Okay. Uh, interesting. That's good to know. That helps. Um, so uh, the, the idea of the perspective shift sounds very interesting. And it sounded like those were pretty like, uh, those are pretty, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, uh, hmm. 
on on purpose is the wrong way of saying that but they were they were not telegraphed but they were there in a way that wasn't just subtle they mm. were like guided intentional yeah yeah they were intentional and also like framed and paragraph or telegraphed well yeah they're totally framed they're like picture framed yeah, <laughs> yeah. so that's very interesting to me i like anything that has that kind of structure uh and also like the three act thing did appeal to me um like I, I would say that out of my frame of reference, to me, this sounds a little bit sort of like the favorite meets Rashomon on some level. Ooh, there are wow. some. Yeah, it's amazing how you haven't seen it, but that's those are very good cross uh, roads of film comparisons there. Like some- this Posey's thing. Like <laughs> he has a savant level talent <laughs> of comparing a movie he's never seen. <laughs> to two perfect movies that I never even thought of. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad. Your oh. super, super secret skill, Cozy. Figure out how to market it. It's <laughs> so impressive. Get that money. All right. Yeah. Right. Oh, interesting. The okay. Favorite. Oh. oh, my gosh. Absolutely the favorite. I would be surprised if Yorgos Lanthimos was not, had not seen this film or was not inspired in part yeah. by this film. Interesting. Okay. Oh, all right. So, you know how the favorite's also funny, but in there's like moments of violence that you're like, oh God, but it's very funny. Yes. Same mm-hmm. same tone. That's the tone we're talking about. Yeah. Okay. That all sounds that all sounds positive to me. I feel like I got a lot of uh, a lot of positive angles on this one. This sounds like the kind of movie where hmm. Yeah, this sounds like the kind of movie I would definitely like seeing. And I bet if I saw a trailer for it, I would be like, yeah, let's give that a try. <laughs> like, it's not one I would immediately uh, like go see. In the same way that The Favorite is not one I would have immediately gone to see. But I was like, I'll try that out and let's see how it goes. And then I was like, oh, yeah, this was good. So, yeah, it's the kind of movie I wouldn't rush out to see but would like while watching. That makes sense. I think that's a lot of, I would say, like, I would say that's a Western feeling in general for like a lot of like foreign films because it's mm. hard to, uh, I don't know. I don't want to speak for people. I, again, because I have a huge lack of knowledge about uh, many others cultures, histories, I think I'm pretty mm. well versed in a lot of modern uh, culture. Uh, I tend to be like, I don't know. This is a lot. Will I feel lost? Uh, or like, will this be boring because I don't understand the context? Um, oh, interesting. And that is again, I think the the shared language of cinema takes you so far in this, and because Park is such a master of cinema, it doesn't matter that it maybe is about something that doesn't feel like a natural pick. because it's so outrageously like cinematic that it draws you into its world and is a great reminder of like the I don't know the power of film and how it helps us cross cultural barriers and language barriers and sure um, I haven't actually watched the trailer so I don't know if it's a compelling trailer or if it gives anything away Michael do you know the trailer yeah, that's the thing. I just came from this knowing about Parchan Wood, so I'm like, I know what I'm in store for. I know like that's that's <laughs> probably the best pitch you could have made. It's just being like, you know this guy's films, you know where it's going. I don't know how they could have pitched it, but it's also like, how did they pitch Parasite to like the U.S. audiences? It's a Korean drama about families and class warfare. 
that doesn't necessarily like immediately grab like U.S. bots office by storm. But I think it's all the nuances that like got people involved, all the like immediately visual elements. I feel like you could easily see like a small scene of this and just sort of get the vibe that it's going for, and maybe that would appeal to you more. Yeah, immediately I feel than, like, like the, the visual element of something like that definitely did it for me for Parasite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I, I, if you watch the first scene, like the first scene, you're immediately in it. Yes. Like it's almost <laughs> like when you read the first paragraph of a book, and I tend to be there like take it or leave it after the first couple of pages and like when a book just grabs you in an opening sentence that's what I'm like yeah I love reading <laughs> like that's how I felt with this movie like the first shot and the opening lines are so fucking compelling and I was just like oh, this is so oh, exciting that's, um, <laughs> that's cool also uh one one more thing from me on this uh is that I've noticed a lot of a lot of Asian cinema. It seems like the only way most American audiences can consume it is if they can frame it in like a Mulan frame, where they're like, <laughs> "Oh, it's a sweeping, broad epic where there's mm-hmm. wars and historical battles." And I'm like, "Oh, I'm sick of seeing that every single movie that we get seems to be that." And I get I stopped caring about those immediately because I hate all war movies because <laughs> they're all war movies. Mm, so I'm really happy to see like I was really happy to see Parasite doing well. Because I was like, thank God, it's breaking the frame. Yeah, yeah. No, these are both very intimate films to like the characters in the story. Like mm. the story probably almost has like just as little like direct states as Parasite, but because it's all about the characters, they feel huge to the characters while telling a like it's a it's a complicated story, but it's like not convoluted. It's very just because it's intense with all the people involved. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that it almost feels like this quick like almost jaunt of the film when really it's very well thought out and very beautifully like composed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very personal. I mean this every scene is between two people or three people. Mm-hmm. Essentially. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I would I'd see this movie then. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> we did it oh my god right. one more handmade handmaiden head yes <laughs> oh yeah the official term for the handmaiden head. yes <laughs> um i really want to rec- uh, recommend another podcast uh which talked about this film called uh east asia for all and um, it really got me into this entire podcast because it's specifically a podcast about East Asian pop culture, like cinema and television. And it's um, hosted by two uh, professors and their guests are always like academics, but they're very jovial and smart and fun to listen to. And so if you mm-hmm. want to hear more about The Handmaiden from an academic perspective, um, their episode on it uh, is really, really fascinating. And mm-hmm. I it helped me with some of my research. Um, and if you're interested in East Asian cinema, they really get into it on their podcast. So I'll put that in the show notes, uh, but something for you too, if you're interested as well. I think you both like it. No, definitely. I want to check that out. This is the, this is definitely also the type of film that can only get richer the more you look into it. And that, yes. definitely, that element definitely, I think, I'll, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Definitely. And I think I you know, talked about the 
uh, we kept putting it into the context of uh, the colonialism, which is something I went into the film knowing very little about, only really basics. And so you don't have to know, you know, Cozy, where you're talking about a large historical sweeping epic. Uh, this is definitely not an epic. Um, and while it is historical, any lack of knowledge around that time period doesn't take away from it. Mm -hmm. um, and learning more can add to it and create more depth, but I don't think it places anybody at a disadvantage going in with little to no knowledge of the time period. Right, like the Suspiria remake. Yes. <laughs> yeah, which was set in such like politically turmoil -y times, and I remember watching it and being like, I don't care, and I don't know, and that's just <laughs> fine. Yes. Yeah, that's given dance. me like yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's given me a lot of confidence in a movie that has a historical uh, backdrop without being historical. <laughs> yes, yeah, I, I think that's again really great about films that that are so layered and have so much depth is you can get as engaged in it as you want to, and mm -hmm. so you can enjoy it just as what you see. Or if you are somebody who like wants to go into a deep dive of research afterwards, the information is there, and it'll just make the story even more vibrant but it the story already is like such a fucking masterpiece without that background interesting that reminds me of too many things that i to, to even bring up at this point <laughs> <laughs> uh this is fear we make that was a good uh definitely because there's a lot of political stuff in that movie that um i think many people maybe were like whatever <laughs> yeah sure oh it's it's interesting um yeah, that definitely that it it taught me a lot. It taught me a lot about how much I didn't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> as weird as that sounds. Yeah, and I think a good filmmaker gives you everything that you need to enjoy a film. Yeah. You know, um and that you can you can get more out of it if you want, but you don't nothing is ruined if you're going in like my history class was bullshit. <laughs> Oh, sure. I also realized that I, I have a lot of tolerance for movies and, and really just pieces of art in general that give you very, very, very little in terms of context mm. and only give you like these little bits and pieces that you can connect to in such personal ways. Uh, like one of my favorite things to do uh, was read a lot of web comics from a guy named Michael DeForge. And he would put pieces of them online, not full stories. And I loved reading the pieces. And I did not understand the full story. And I was not even compelled to like go buy the whole story. I just <laughs> loved the pieces. You know, that's a very, um, <laughs> in uh, living in the moment, uh, very present attitude, Cozy. I'll take it. That works for me. <laughs> uh, there's something to be said for not, not always looking for more and appreciating what you have right in front of you. I like that. <laughs> Um, well, let's get into what y'all watched this week or what you got into this week that you want to recommend uh, to our listeners. Michael, I'll let you go first. What do people need to see or engage in? All right. Um, yeah, this one was, is a very different speed than The Handmaiden, obviously. <laughs> well, I, I imagine all of ours are going to be very different speeds than The Handmaiden. <laughs> um, but I was finishing up a TV show that was just coming out this year, and it's been put on Hulu uh, on FX called Dave. And oh. <laughs> I, are you guys familiar with it? Yes, we actually had uh, our guest from a few weeks ago on our uh, Spice World episode was also talking about how good Dave is. So I'd love to hear <laughs> yeah. another perspective on it. 
hopefully uh, I at least have the perspective that it's also over. Like it just finished the first season now. Oh, and okay. it very much lands the uh, stits the landing. It's very, I think, very interesting how like this. It started off like one way, and it could have like gone any which way. I really appreciate where they took it. I think the main like comparison point I have is that similar to another FX show, you're the worst, and that it's like mm. kind of a tragic comedy of like circumstances, even though it's a very heightened idea. Um, and I'm not even like I also don't know why I got into it as much as I did because I wasn't like a little dicky fan before I started, which is like the main <laughs> rapper who's like the character of the show. Yeah, and I think it does something very different with the character that like could have been done, which is like it very much is like almost a tragic comedy exploration of ego and performing and trying to like seek fame. And mm-hmm. I think the last two episodes especially do a great job of really making it more personal and more. Uh, contemplative about like consequences of acting that way um, and I think it like surprisingly is like really triumphant and beautiful at the end of it all even though it's still a film it's still a tv show rather about like dick jokes and like really mm-hmm. absurd rap moments and really kind of weird like uh, like alt comedy moments um, it has kind of some degree of almost magical realism to it at a couple points too and it also uses like it's a film about rap and music arts like music artists and like the industry and the way it uses its cameos is also really interesting because it uses some real rappers in ways that don't feel like trying to pimp them out into like these really interesting roles or really dramatic moments instead just make them feel casual yeah, but they yeah. add to the stories really interesting like there's literally an episode where justin bieber cameos and the point more of that cameo is that like the guy Dave doesn't normally care about Justin Bieber, but just meeting him and he like is starting to have a freak out and meltdown about like being that close to fame. <laughs> and I think that alone is just a really interesting dynamic that the films that the show still does more with it is really cool. I really dug it. Wow. Well, having two recommendations on that show yeah. now, I feel like I really do need to see it. <laughs> it's interesting because yeah. both you and Cassandra both said that you weren't fans of his work before the yeah. TV show. I I did show Kelsey a couple of like the ones that I knew of and they're some of that are funny, but like ultimately I'm just like I don't normally go my way to hear like quote unquote comedy rap or satirical rap. So like mm-hmm. I wasn't I didn't know what to expect from the show. I think the show is very different from just that concept though. So I really appreciated it. I mean there isn't a ton of satirical comedy rap out there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's sort of like that realm of like nerdcore hip hop, or like you know, like we're being different rap for the sake of it. I think yeah. there is like a lot of different alt rap that I can listen to that doesn't need to go there. And so mm-hmm. I don't know. I just and I'm not hating on it either. Like I just don't go on my way. So I didn't know what to expect from a show about it, but I really dug it. Yeah. Cool. Thank you, Cozy. What are you recommending this week? Uh, this week I am recommend, I'm taking a cue off of, uh, another thing that I know about Michael Hearn as Nat is uh, <laughs> Philly. And yeah. I'm going to recommend a thing that he has, he already is very aware of, but I'm recommending it to everybody who isn't him. <laughs> <laughs> is it right. Prince of Bel-Air? <laughs> yes. Oh, Great I've got show. such insight. <laughs> <laughs> really going to crack the case on that one. Um, uh, and one I've talked to Luce about too a bunch, but haven't officially recommended on this podcast yet, and that is the band Hop Along and Francis Quinlan, the lead singer, who is amazing. Uh, for everybody who does not know about this amazing Philly band and singer, uh, she has the most, uh, she has the best voice in my <laughs> opinion in music right now. It's insane and wonderful. 
the lyrics, the storytelling, they're so great. They really take you in such great places. She turns a phrase so well. And like, there's such a great deep dive of her solo stuff and her old stuff when she was uh, hop along Queen Anne Slice. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's exciting to go find all of that old, old stuff. That sounds great. And you did actually recommend her to me a couple months ago and I forgot to start listening. So now I have to take this recommendation seriously. Yes. Oh, please. I'm so excited for you. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, there's so much good stuff in there. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, I love uh, Painted Shut, the album by Hoplon was like my entry point that really just synced it. It was so great. And her performance vocally on it is so amazing. It's insane what she does. Yeah. Oh, it's insane. Wow, I'm excited. I love hearing both of you be excited about it because that gets me pumped up. Um, (laughs) Okay, well, I am going to recommend the short film Fanatico. Um, This is made by a really incredible group of filmmakers up in Portland. I got to see it on the festival circuit when I was uh, traveling with my horror short messed up. Um, And it just got released online. And you can see it on their, you can find the link on their Instagram. It's just on Vimeo. Their Instagram is Fanatico Short Film. And Fanatico is spelled F-A-N-A-T-I-C-O. And it is a horror uh, giallo film about a boarding school, like a religious boarding school. And uh, a lot of the girls who go to the school are sex workers. And there's like a murder mystery plot and it's very beautifully shot, uh, extremely stylish. It's very funny. Um, and it's like legitimately creepy and haunting and scary. And it's about 18, I think 18 to 20 minutes long. So longer than a lot of short films, but it is outrageously engrossing. And when you you know find out who the killer is, it's really surprising and exciting and fun. And the fact that it was shot by... I believe they're all either just graduated college or they were in college when they made this is so impressive to me because they know more about film than most people in their thirties that I know. So mm-hmm. uh, if you're interested in that genre at all, I highly recommend Fanatico. And even if you uh, maybe don't know a lot about Jalo, but you know, Suspiria, cause we've talked about Suspiria a lot on this podcast, uh, mm-hmm. you will appreciate it. And I think it's a really great uh, gateway film to get you into uh, that genre of Italian horror. Uh, it is in English, you know, Portland based. Um, but since we talked about highly stylized movies a lot today, I I think it's so impressive when people with a low budget who are making a film themselves are able to make a film that's highly stylized. And uh, I think everyone will appreciate the art direction that went into Fanatico. So go check that out. Support indie filmmakers and female filmmakers. Um, and if you have any movies that you want us to see, tell us you need to see this. Uh, you can contact us on Twitter or Instagram at need to see pod, or you can join our Facebook group. You need to see this, uh, Facebook group where we discuss films and you can also like our, our page on Facebook as well. Um, if you've seen, uh, the handmaiden, let us know what you think. We would love to get into it online with you. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at LTB comedy. Uh, Michael, where can people follow you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram at Michael C Hearn, H-E-A-R-N is how Hearn is spelled. And then, uh, you can see all my short films on Michael C Hearn.com. 
which relates to my Vimeo page. And yeah, those are my short films that were made out here in LA. And uh, hopefully I'll be able to keep updating that this year too. Awesome. And we'll link all that in the show notes so you guys can easily find that. And Cozy, can people find you anywhere right now? No, but thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) They can talk to you on, uh, on our Facebook group. Yeah, if you post anything on our Facebook group and you tag me in it, I'll talk to you about it no matter what the thing is. That's a weird standing challenge. <laughs> we would prefer if it was film related, but sure. That'd be ideal. <laughs> um, and then also, please, uh, if you want to do anything to help us out right now, um, you could do something easy and free, which is you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes. And if you leave us a five-star review and a positive review, we will read it on the air. Um, All of that really helps us stand out. um, And it makes it so that when people search our names, that it'll actually pop up instead of bury us in a hell of a graveyard of podcasts people stopped updating years ago. It's true. I have a I have a name that is very unique, but it's also very similar to another podcaster's name. And I was like, who's this Corey jackass? No, thank you. Is there a Corey Orlin? It's like Corey O'Brien or something. And I was like, Ugh. close enough, but also not at Get all. Get out of here. And I have it. Well, Ugh. we both have names that are confusingly spelled and mine has <laughs> an accent mark in it. Uh, so please, the more rating and reviewing you do, the easier it'll be to find our very unique names on the podcast of your choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you so much to everybody for listening. Thank you, Michael, for coming on. This was such a yeah, delight you. having you. Uh, and yeah, thank you. yeah, no, you're welcome. And for picking this film, which uh, <laughs> I put back on my radar, and I really appreciate. Um, I'm going to be thinking about it for weeks. So thank you. <laughs> uh, and thank you so much to Pete Burns, our audio engineer. Um, we couldn't do it without you. You wouldn't be hearing us without him. So uh, thank you, Pete. We miss <laughs> you. We miss seeing you in person. Miss you. We do. We really miss it. <laughs> we miss being in person. And I'm sure all of you miss being in person. And I hope that you're taking care of yourselves and your community. And we can't wait to, uh, you know, hug in the future. <laughs> we can all hug each other. Too. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to You Need to See This. You need to see this. You need to see this. You need. It's your need you to need see it. this. Heavy one, much no, Kyokai Center.